Timothy and Octavius spent another night up on the city walls. It was past midnight, they were about to settle down for their sleep. Uh, of course, officially they were taking turns to watch down the cliffside into the darkness below, but years ago they decided, as had their superiors, that there was no point in doing that in a city like Sardis, because no one could conquer the great city of Sardis. It was a city on a hill, walled on three sides by a sheer cliff. The only way to get into the city is via the extremely well-guarded walls on the fourth side. Who could ever conquer the great city of Sardis? So the, the nominal guards on the other three sides were sparse and they were lazy. Timothy and Octavius uh, were just like them. Octavius needed uh, the toilet, it got to midnight, needed the toilet before he had his nap. He rested his helmet on the wall as he did every night before he had his nap. And he did what he needed to do. As he placed his helmet on the wall, it slipped, bounced over the wall and into the darkness below. Sheepishly, he looked over the wall, thinking he'd be hearing it clunk, clunk, clunk down the cliff and into the oblivion below. Timothy ambled over, he was the more experienced of the two, ambled over to see what had happened with a, with a flaming torch. He was laughing at Octavius's stupidity and he hopped over the wall, gently lowered himself the 10 or so meters down to where the helmet had fallen and rested and just hopped back up and returned it to Octavius. Octavius was startled. He was sure that had been unclimbable, that his helmet was gone. Timothy handed the helmet back to him chuckled at his gormless-looking friend and settled back for a nap. Octavius had a slightly curious feeling. If Timothy could so easily get my helmet when it fell down the cliff, surely somebody could get up the other side. That thought quickly left him, though, when he remembered the well-tread phrases about the impregnability of Sardis. Who could ever conquer the great city of Sardis? So he settled back into his watchtower pulled his cloak down over his face and went to sleep, waiting for morning to rise and the boring repetition of guarding a cliff face to begin again tomorrow. The next night, an army of only a few hundred Alexander the Great's men who had spotted the helmet the night before broke through the unguarded defences of Sardis and conquered the impregnable city. Sardis, the overconfident, had fallen. Their complacency had cost them their city. Overconfidence, complacency. All actions we do are predicated on confidence, aren't they? We do something because we're confident it's the right thing to do, or that we can do it. We don't do something either because we're not confident we can do it, or in the case of the cards in Sardis, because we're overconfident. The church in Sardis receiving this letter about 500 years after that true story, by their names, actually a true story. <laughs> They would have known that story, and it happened twice in their history. The impregnable city was defeated first by King Cyrus and then by Alexander the Great, both times due to overconfidence, due to utter complacency in the city. The church in Sardis was just like that. It was complacent. And the brutal verdict of Jesus in verse 1 of this, our fifth message to the churches, is, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So wake up, or more accurately, keep watch, keep watch. 
Their overconfidence had led them to be negligent and they were in a great danger of death, spiritual death, and that's really serious. So whether you currently say you follow Jesus or not here today, listen to what God has to say to this church. Listen to where our confidence needs and can be found because today's letter deals with life and death, true and full life. Something, whether we believe in God or not, we'll all be pursuing. Now it is just worth, we've done this every letter we've looked at, just remembering these messages, uh, they aren't written directly to us here at Town Church. Uh, They're not directly written to you. That said though, as we've seen, these seven churches are representative of all churches in history. And at the end of all the letters, we're called to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we look at what Jesus has to say here, people in here, this room today, will need to hear this warning or are in danger of this and so need to hear this now. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, let us today hear your words. Let us today hear what you have to say to us today, thousands of years later. And let us then to act on it, Lord. Let us not just passively sit and listen, but let us act to what you have to say through your living and active word today. Amen. So firstly, we get the diagnosis. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is a, it's a zombie church. If you're thinking of the church in Sardis, if you're trying to remember doing a quiz next week, think overconfident, deluded zombies. Zombies have the appearance of being alive, but they're actually dead. It's why they're so scary. Uh, this church had the reputation of being alive, but they were in fact dead. It's, it's a hypocritical church. And I don't know, I found looking at these letters, I've tried to think, what would this church look like in Britain today? What would it look like? What would, the, what would this letter be written to? And I, and I think this church, it would have the appearance of being full of life, successful. There'd be no lack of activity. It would have a thriving children's work. Many people would be attending week on week. They'd have loads of people at small groups, people coming to pizza and prayer. They'd love to sing. They'd be there at the Sunday gathering. People would say this church was alive. They'd say it was full of life even. There wouldn't be any major concerns from the outside looking in about false teaching or heresy. There wouldn't be any whiff of major scandal of sexual immorality like the last two weeks we've looked at. Their reputation, their appearance would be of life. And yet Jesus looks at them and he knows them. Because it's important for us to remember this, Jesus does not just see our outsides, does he? He he sees our hearts, he knows our motivations, he knows our desires, he knows exactly why you're here today. He knows why we do what we do. And he looks at this church which looks like it's full of life and he says, no, in reality it is dying. That's for diagnosis. It has two main symptoms uh, to it. Firstly, verse 2, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Um, the revised version has it probably slightly easier to understand. I think it says, I have, I have not found any deeds carried out fully. I've not found any deeds. So they're doing stuff, just not to its full state. The activity was there, but there was no real life to it. There was no light coming from this church. 
the lampstand was, was dull, it was done. And the activities were done because it was what was done. It was routine. Onlookers would look on and visitors would come and visit this church on a Sunday afternoon and they'd leave going, they seem to have lots going on. That was good. But, but in God's sight, you could see there was no life. This is just nominalism. It's a Christian nominalism. I, um, I lived in Egypt for a time and I went to a church when I was there. 10% uh, of Egypt's population is officially Christian. Uh, and I mean officially, they all have ID cards. And on that ID card, it states your religion. There's only really two religions. You're either Christian or Muslim. That's it. And the word for Christian in Arabic is Messiaen. It means follower of Jesus. Messiaen, follower of Jesus. However, in this church, one of my first Sundays, I was sitting and listening. It's an Arabic-speaking church. So I could understand about every tenth word, maybe. But I kept hearing the word Mu'minin. So I asked my friend who was sitting next to me. I asked him what he meant. And he said it meant Christian. And I was confused. Um, Arabic is complicated. It has 20 words for the word camel, literally. Um, but it, I was like, why does it have two words for Christian? Is there a reason it has two words for the word Christian, or is it just, just language? And he said, no, 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 there's a real reason behind it. Messiaen means Christian. It means your ID card states you're a Christian. It means you go to a Christian school. It means you live in the Christian area. You go to church. Your family is Christian. You're defined as Christian. He said, Mu'minin means believer. He explained that of the 10% of the population who are Christian, only 10% of them really are actual believers. People who their faith is not just normal, it's not just cultural, it's not just on their ID card. They go to church not because they have to, but because they long to. England is not a Christian country. You're not a Christian if you live somewhere particular, if you went to a particular school or you're in a particular family. The church in Sardis was dead, it was nominal, it was Christian in name only. They called themselves Christian, but there was no life. And I think this is such a danger for, for churches, it's a danger for ourselves of maybe going to certain stages in life when formality and going through the motions is all there is maybe. When maybe we, we go to things, we sit on rotors out of guilt, or, or just out of routine, not out of love. Outwardly, it seems we're functioning, but in, in reality, there's nothing there. Nothing is really being fulfilled, unfinished works, fulfilled before God. The deeds are unfinished because they're lacking in life and they're lacking in love. And when Jesus looks at the church, when he, when he looks at us and our church, he's really looking for fruit. He's looking for a faith grounded in reality and real living. He's looking for Christ-likeness, for growing in Christ-likeness at least. A reality that is outward and not only our love for God but also our love for neighbours, a, a life that doesn't just go through the motions, he's, he's looking for a transformed life. It's possible for a church to have loads of programmes and plans but nothing that really counts for eternity. Sardis was living on a past reputation of life, of safety, and they were overconfident in that. The second symptom uh, we see implied in verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. That means many have. The majority, in fact, have. It's a pretty, pretty disgusting picture, isn't it? Some of you have not soiled your clothes. Now, remember, their, their reputation was good. Uh, so their dirtiness, their sin, was not loud and brash and obvious necessarily. It was subtle, hidden, maybe different to the other church we've looked at. 
Last summer, we read uh, the screw tape letters of the church. In it, uh, C.S. Lewis, he imagines an older demon mentoring a younger demon as he tempts a new Christian. And it, it brilliantly illustrates in one chapter what the devil is trying to get us to do in this area of complacency when it comes to sin. So let me read, uh, I'm just going to read a, a section from the chapter. And remember, it's sometimes hard to get our head around it. I know some have struggled with it over the summer. Um, it's written from the perspective of the demons tempting the patient. The patient is the Christian. Uh, they talk about the enemy. The enemy is God. It's, it's, it's all reversed slightly. And this is what this, this demon writes. He says, I'm almost glad to hear that he, that is the Christian, is still a churchgoer. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realise the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a, a definite, fully recognised sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, that is God. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Complacency, overconfidence maybe. What are the small sins? What are the poorly guarded walls that we aren't dealing with? Jerry Bridges uh, wrote this really helpful book. I'd highly recommend it. We might well read it as a church once. It's called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. It's really helpful to try and diagnose some of these areas where we're in danger of drifting because this is the danger of the overconfident. We don't take things seriously. We think we're okay because we professed faith a while ago. We, we go to church, we try to read our Bibles occasionally, we give to the church, we go through the motions. Externally, our reputation is one of life. And yet, like the church we looked at in Ephesus, we lack love and we lack life, maybe. Turn me, if you've got a Bible, to, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3 really briefly. So page 1196, it will be on the screen, but you can have a look at it if you want. Page 1196, 2 Timothy 3. Paul is writing to Timothy about what it will be like in the last days, as Lanx just talked about, these days after Christ has uh, been resurrected and gone up to heaven and before he returns, that's now. And when the church in Sardis received their letters at the same time, and he says this, he says, Mark this, Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What is it that such people have as their bottom line? They love themselves and they love money. There is no love for God or for others. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it seems when you look at the history of Sardis, this is what was going on in the church. 
They have a form of godliness. Notice that Paul is talking about people in the church here. He's talking about Christians. They have a form, or people who would say to be Christians, or be said to be Christians. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. There's no demonstration of the power of God at work. Because as we've said, the gospel transforms us from being lovers of ourselves, being lovers of God and lovers of others. We will get it wrong. Of course we will. We'll do it half as much as we'd like to. But there's that gradual progression, that transformation as the Holy Spirit works within us. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit in a minute. God within us transforms us to turn outward away from ourselves and outwards towards God and to others. There is a fruitfulness in a church which is alive, not dead. The only evidence of spiritual life in us is that we are being changed. Changed that more and more we love God and love neighbour. Gradual, of course, but changed. If that isn't the case, then the conclusion here of Jesus writing to the church in Sardis is the death. The church in Sardis looked alive, but is in fact dead. The church shouldn't just have a reputation of being alive, it should have a life itself. And remember, this is written to the church in Sardis, but it's helpful for us to hear the warning, maybe. Maybe you need to hear the warning, maybe you don't. And you can just be wary that it could come in the future. But that's for diagnosis, that's for symptoms, and then we get to the glorious remedy that Christ proposes. We get five urgent commands, they're underlined there on the screen. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember! Therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Firstly, wake up. Saying to the guards, wake up. It's so easy to settle with the sins and attitudes that we have that we don't really want to change. We get stuck in a rut and we give ourselves a false sense of security by saying it doesn't really matter. Our sin doesn't really matter. It's only a small sin. No one else knows about it. It only affects me. It doesn't affect anyone else. I know I'm just going through the motions, but I'm nice, I'm good, so I, I, I do the things I should do. I come to church pretty regularly, not just when it's convenient, it's, it's something we do. Wake up. If your confidence is in those things, then wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is the call to, to act, to strengthen. We saw in the letter of the Ephesians a call to actually do something, not just hear the words, but actually do something about them. It's why our small groups are geared up around applying the passages every single time. We've had people ask us, why don't we do another Bible study like some churches would do and look at other books and things in our small groups? These can all be really good things. But we're convinced a real danger for us, which a lot of us face, I know I face, is we turn up on a Sunday, maybe we catch up on the podcast and listen to the sermon for a few minutes, we nod along, maybe right now you're sitting, I'm convicted a little bit here, I'm challenged here. But when the gathering ends, it's gone. We don't apply it. We don't wrestle with what God wants us to do with what he said to us in his word. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's a call to act here to the church in Sardis. God's word is meant to be transformative, not just academic. It's meant to change us. And so we want to give space in small groups, in growth groups, in conversations after church to ask that, that sort of so what question. I've heard this, but so what? What difference does it make? And God says this to the church in Sardis. So what? Do something. And Jesus said helpfully, as he often graciously does, tells us what to do. Third thing, remember what you've received and heard. 
Firstly, remember what you've heard. Go back to the gospel and preach it to yourself. Be blown away by it again. Remember, put it at the very centre of your lives. Put your confidence in this and this alone. The call here is to remember the gospel and let it thrill us daily. The amazing truth of God's outrageous love and grace in loving us people who naturally are inclined to not honour him. He calls us to marvel at his work on the cross, marvel at the resurrection, remember the gospel. We're going to do that in communion in a minute. Have confidence in what God has done, not what you've done or not done. Remember what you've received and heard. Remember what you've received. They'd received more than the gospel though. They'd received the Holy Spirit. He's the distinctive gift that we all receive when we respond to the gospel of repentance and faith. So that the people have the power to change. They have the power to live out God's commands. God himself living within us by his spirit. Right at the start of a letter, it's often at the start of a letter we get a description of Jesus which harks back to the vision in chapter 1, which helps us understand a bit more about exactly what was being got out here. And right at the start of a letter, Jesus is described as him who holds the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. As we said, the number of completeness, seven, and uh, it's just talking about the Holy Spirit and all his fullness. And this message to Sardis is reminding us of the life-giving power of the spirit available to all. They are dead, but there is life available in Christ. What other message does a dead or dying church need to hear but this? They need to hear that it is the Holy Spirit who can breathe life into our maybe formal worship, who can animate our dead works until they pulsate with life. It's the Holy Spirit who can rescue a dying church and make it a living force in the community. A stale church can be refreshed by him. A, a sleepy church can be awakened. A weak church can be strengthened. And a dead church can be made alive by the Spirit. There's hope here in this letter to the church in Sardis. And the next command then follows it, says, hold it fast, hold it fast, or in some ways just obey it. It's the crunch of the issue, just do what God says. Leave your compromise, leave your overconfidence, leave your sin and seek to love God, obey his word, serve him. And that will be evidence of the last command being fulfilled, which is repentance, repent for final call. A change in mind will lead to a change in direction. A change in direction of building your life on the gospel and on Christ. You see, it's, in some ways it's not a difficult treatment from the doctor here as he looks at our symptoms, looks at the diagnosis. It's not difficult, but it had to be put into effect. That was the call to the church inside. It had to be put into effect or what? Look down with me at verse 3. Remember therefore what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not, wake up. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. The conquerors of Sardis came like thieves in the night. They knew this language they'd heard again and again. Alexander the Great came like thieves in the night. They were complacent. They weren't actively waiting and longing for Jesus' return. His impending return was not something which affected how they lived. And so his return was an utter shock to them. It would be an utter shock and startle them and they would be found dead and be judged accordingly. Wake up. The doctor can give the cure, but you have to take the medicine or there'll be disaster. That's Christ's remedy. Finally, we get his promises. And this is glorious. If you follow the treatment, this is what will happen. 
Verse 4, read with me. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. See the hope in that? It's wonderful in that. There's a few people who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. You see, there was a small healthy remnant in Sardis. The church may have really appeared dead when Jesus looked at it, but they weren't all dead. They weren't all compromised. And these people, it says here, will walk with Christ in white garments. Now, like numbers in Revelation would have significant colours, they're also significant. And white is, we probably know that just from our culture, it's purity, holiness, perfection. And the Lord, this is the hope for the people who are receiving this letter. Jesus wrote this letter of real love to the church which was dying. The Lord says it's possible for others to be like those who are dressed in white. See that in verse 5, the one who is victorious will be like them, be dressed in white. It's possible for life to be brought to a dead church. How? Well, you see their worthiness, their cleanliness is not due to their superior moral strength. It's simply due to the fact that they're trusting in Jesus and living under his lordship. You see, the only way to walk with Christ, to walk alongside and to be counted worthy, is to trust in his death, to put trust in him daily. We, we need to go to Revelation 7. The, the letters get unpacked again and again as we go on in Revelation, and we see them talk about people in white clothes. In Revelation 7, 13 and 14, we, it kind of explains all these white clothes and how they come about says, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. <coughs> washed in the blood of the lamb. The only way to have white robes is through them being washed in the blood of the lamb. That's Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And that's gloriously hopeful. Because friends, no past failure, no past compromise or complacency need keep us from eternal fellowship of walking with Christ. All of this can be ours if our robes are washed in the blood of a lamb. If you don't trust Jesus yet, this is all you need to do. Trust in his work for you on the cross. His blood shed for you because you needed it. You can then have a reputation of life and have life itself not just the reputation. Jesus' blood can make us white and pure and allow us to live with God forever. So what's stopping you? And if you are a Christian today, return to this. Keep remembering this as we're called to do. Remember the gospel. However dirty your garments might be, these robes can be cleansed. You can be right before God. We finally see a second promise as we close. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Uh, the citizens of Sardis, they would have understood this concept um, because the Christians in the city may well have had their names blotted out of the book of citizenship in the city. Um, imagine passports being taken away from Christians probably today, but citizenship gone. That on the city register. That was quite normal within Roman culture, potentially, this history seems to say. So they understood this concept of the book of, book of life, of names being written in a book, which said, I'm a citizen of that place. And here Jesus is saying, he's 
offering real comfort to his church. He's saying that God will never cross out the names of those who depend on Jesus. Their names will permanently be in the book of life. And how marvellous is it as it goes on to say, Jesus will then acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Because you see, on that final day, as we come to be judged, and we will all in this room be judged, whether you believe in him or not today, you will stand before God. And if you've put your trust in Jesus and his work, then Jesus will say before the Father, and this is glorious, I know him. I know her. Those white clothes are because they trusted in me. So turn to him today if you don't currently. Turn to him again and praise him again today. The only place where it matters where your name is written is God's book of life. So, where is our confidence? Where is our church's confidence? Is our reputation of being alive? Maybe it is our reputation, I don't know. It's hard to have a reputation when you're in the church. Is it justified to say, I think we're alive? Or is our confidence unfounded? The answer depends on where we have rested our confidence, in whom we have rested it. We can't go by on past reputation unless tomorrow we continue to trust in Jesus. Is there a a completeness, a consistency about our dedication, our devotion to Christ? Or are we just jogging along, relying on reputation? Two time in God and, and dull to our sin. Relying on the fact that, that we've called ourselves a Christian for so long and we just kind of can believe it's true because we keep doing it. If so, the call here is to wake up, repent, return. Because the only assessment that matters is if our names are in the book of life. Your confidence, where is it? If it's in the risen Christ, God will not be ashamed to know us. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.